Merry Christmas. It's a little early, but it's tomorrow. You know, Merry Christmas. Uh, good to be with everybody this morning. Uh, glad to be in the house of the Lord with you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning, so if you want to grab your Bibles or follow along with us, uh, I won't keep you long this morning. Some of you still got shopping to do. You got a few hours. Uh, but we're going to look at verses 8 through 12 in chapter 2. Verses 8 through 12. Uh, if you're new around here, we're glad you're with us. Glad you could be our guest today. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad you could celebrate Christmas with us. Uh, Luke chapter 2, reading verses 8 through 12. And we're really going to just focus on verse 12. We're going we're gonna to sit on that for a little bit and meditate on that today. Uh, it's been a real gift to me this morning and this this week leading up to it. But verses 8 through 12 is what we'll read. Hear the reading of God's word. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Here it is. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the gift of a sign. The gift of a sign. Let's pray before we go in. Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you that the word became flesh. That is what we celebrate in Christmas. The word became flesh. You have spoken to us not only in the scriptures, but by your son. And so, Lord Jesus, we give you praise this morning. We give you all glory as we celebrate your birth, as we celebrate your ministry, your saving grace to us. May your word go deep into our hearts and transform us forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, using signs is as old as the game of baseball itself. In fact, so is stealing those signs. And I don't know if you're a baseball fan. I'm, I'm not really a baseball fan, but I've, I've been around baseball enough to, to know some of the basics. But what happens in a baseball game is the catcher sends a sign to the pitcher to tell the pitcher which type of pitch to throw. And so as long as baseball has been played, people have been trying to steal the signs from the catcher so they could know what was coming. And this even happened in 1951 when the New York Giants, which are no longer the New York Giants, they were uh, winning the pennant for their league in, in the major leagues. And, and in the game, the game where they won the pennant, had the, the most famous home run in baseball history. They call it the shot heard around the world. And it was this guy named Bobby Thompson who hits this home run. Well, there's one thing wrong with the home run. He cheated. They took the sign. See, you wouldn't find out for a while, but it, you look back and now, now they know that there was a spy across the field on the other side with a little handheld telescope. And he was watching the catcher to see what signs the catcher was sending to the pitcher. And as soon as he would see the sign with his little handheld telescope all the way on the other side of the field, he would hit a little buzzer. And the buzzer would go off, and it would go off in the, dug, in the dugout, which is where the other teammates were. And the teammates would have a sign to the batter to tell the batter, this is what's coming. So they would tell him, 
it's going to be a fastball, it's going to be a curveball, it's going to be a slider, whatever the pitch is, this is the pitch that's coming. And so Bobby knew. He knew the pitch that was coming. He hits the home run, becomes the most famous home run in baseball's history, but he cheated. And we wouldn't find out for 50 years later that they actually cheated. Now, the question is, why would someone go to such lengths to, to cheat on, on such high stakes to get a sign of what the pitch was going to be? Here it is, because a sign tells us the truth about what we need to know. A sign tells us something. A sign, by its very nature, communicates to us. And without signs, we don't know. We're just guessing. I mean, imagine if you're trying to drive down the interstate with no signs on I-4. Chaos. It's chaos with signs. Chaos without signs. Imagine trying to navigate through Walmart at Christmas time with no signs. Chaos. I mean, you're just guessing. You're like the batter who's waiting for the pitch to come. You're trying to guess, is it going to be a fastball? Is it going to be a curveball? I don't know until the last second. And sometimes you're right, and sometimes you're wrong. But you're still guessing. You're still trying to see, is this going to be correct? And listen, the most dangerous thing in life we can guess about is God. It's God. I mean, imagine you're, you're guessing, what, what is God really like? What, what does he really love? What does he hate? What does he do? Who is he? What's his character? If you're guessing about God, the stakes are much higher than Walmart. If you're guessing, you, you never really know who he is. See, one of the most important questions you can ask yourself any time of the year, but especially Christmas is what have I been telling myself about who God is? What have I been telling myself about who God is? See, maybe you, maybe you grew up in church and you've been kind of around Christianity for a long time, and yet somehow you've told yourself that God is distant. God is, is out there somewhere in heaven, and he's not really relevant to my life, and, 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 and I just feel like he doesn't care about me. He doesn't, he's not interested in me. He's, he's distant out there somewhere else. Or maybe you are new to faith and you're, you're trying to figure out what you believe and, and you're wondering, uh, you know, is God really like some of the Christians I know? Because some of the Christians I know, they're, they're a little judgmental. They're a little angry. They, they, they don't do what they say at work or whatever it is, right? You've got a perception of Christians and so you're wondering, is God like the Christians that I know? Or maybe again, you've been around a little while and, and you walked away from the faith and and you're wondering, can God really be a forgiving God? Does God really care about the things that have happened in my life and the pain I've experienced and the, the difficulty I've been through, right? I don't know what it is for you, but there, there are questions we start telling ourselves and, 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 and questions we start asking about who God really is. And so what we need to really talk about today is, are, are the questions that I've, I've, I've asked about God or, or the things I've told myself about God, do they match with what he says about himself? Do they match with what he says about himself? Because the miracle of Christmas is we don't have to guess anymore. The miracle of Christmas is that God has come to tell us exactly who he is. He's given us a sign. And so we're finishing this Advent series today that we've been calling A Weary World 
rejoices. And for the last nine months in our story, Mary and Joseph have been walking around with this promise, this, this secret, if you will, that God has come to them in the angel Gabriel and told them they are going to bear a son and this son will be the Messiah of the world the one who's been promised, the anointed one, the savior, right? And so they've been walking around with this promise and now the nine months has come and Mary is full term and as she's entering into the final days of her pregnancy, they, they call a census across the world or the, the Roman Empire in the world. And uh, what that means is now Joseph has to go back to his hometown of Bethlehem so that he can be registered for the census. And so they, they estimate that it's about a 90-mile trek that Mary and Joseph have to walk while she's in her final days of pregnancy. Can you imagine? I can't. I've never been pregnant. But the women in the room who've been pregnant, walking 90 miles while you're pregnant, exhausted. They show up in the middle of the night. They're, they're worn out. There's nowhere to stay. They end up finding a little shelter where the animals are staying. And that's where Mary and Joseph lay their head for the night. And then Mary goes into labor and Jesus comes in that little shelter. Could you imagine? God makes his entrance into the world in this place. Mary and Joseph are there. It's a dark Silent night, as the song says, and outside are shepherds in the field. And the Bible says that these shepherds are, are watching their flock. They're, they're tending to their flock. And in their culture, shepherds were a, a marginalized group of people. They, they had kind of a, a ranking system socially, and shepherds were almost at the bottom. The only people below the shepherds were the lepers, so it's lepers and then shepherds. They, they didn't trust the shepherds. They thought they were thieves and liars. They had a reputation that was so bad, shepherds couldn't testify in court in Israel. And that, that's how bad it was. They, the worship and, and the leaders of the religious uh, group there, they, they didn't want the shepherds in among them. And so people had told the shepherds, this is who you are. You are at the bottom. And God, he doesn't care about you. He doesn't like you. He's not concerned about you. You are at the bottom. So in other words, the society had told them who God was. But now God was about to tell them who he was. God was about to enter into their story. And so God sends an angel that appears to the shepherds while they're out in the field. And he says to these shepherds, go to Bethlehem. And there you'll find a Savior. And when you arrive, there will be a sign. right? There'll be a sign that's going to communicate to you who I really am. Not what people say about me. Not what you've thought about me. Not what people are guessing. But this is who I really am. In other words, God is saying, you don't have to try to steal signs anymore. I'm going to give it to you. And it's going to be a two-part sign. There's a baby and a manger. A baby and a manger. And so that's what I want to look at real briefly this morning. First, let's look at the sign of a baby. The baby. Look at verse 11 again. Just listen to these words. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You will find a baby. I mean, surely God could have chosen any other means. In his infinite power and wisdom, God could have chosen 
so many other options. He, he could have said, you will find a decorated military general. Or you will find a, a uh, successful business tycoon. Or you will find a sly political activist and strategist. Like you, you will find somebody with strength and power and wit, and you will find something that, was, that looks mighty and, and strong. But he doesn't. In fact, God could have said, you know, what you're going to find is going to be beyond anything you've ever imagined, something so extravagant and, and incredible, and yet what you're going to find is a baby. I mean, God could have skipped infancy and gone right onto the stage of infamy and said, I'm just going to be your God and Savior. I'm not going to enter into your world, but he didn't. So why not? Why not? Our oldest daughter uh, in our family is about to turn 11, which is hard to believe. And I was thinking this week, as I'm reading through this passage, just back to the day we, we took her home from the hospital, our, our firstborn child bringing her home from the hospital. And, you know, she's so small and tender and fragile and, and you know, just lightweight, just so small. And, I, and I'm walking through the door of our, our little apartment right around the corner from here and uh, walking through the door, and it hits me that day as I'm walking through the door, there's no more doctors. There's no more nurses. There, it's just us trying to take care of this baby, trying to feed her and love her and protect her and help her and teach her and, and all of these things. It, it's us taking care of this baby. That's it. And it hits you as a parent for the first time. You, you realize this child is completely dependent on me to thrive and survive. And then you start to realize that's true of every single infant, right? To be an infant demands vulnerability and weakness and neediness. Now, I want you to ponder this for a second. This is a mystery of mysteries. The God who holds the universe was being held in Mary's arms. The God who supplies every need of all creation at all times in every places was feeding at the breast of Mary. Think about that. The God who spoke the stars into existence in every utter corner of the universe is now babbling at Mary's ears. Think about that. God becomes man in the person of Jesus Christ to show us what he's really like. To say, up to this point, you, you may have been guessing. Up to this point, you may have heard some things about me. Up to this point, you may have asked some questions and didn't get answers. But I want you to have an undeniable sign forever. This is what I'm like. So what is he like? God is vulnerable and he's approachable. Listen, God comes in, in vulnerability to reveal to us his approachability. That's what he says. Martin Luther uh, said it this way. He said, if Christ had arrived with trumpets and lain in a cradle of gold, his birth would have been a splendid affair. But it would not be a comfort to me. He was rather to lie in the lap of a poor maiden and be thought of little significance in the eyes of the world. But now, now I can come to him. Now I can come to him. 
Luther's saying this. He's saying, sure, God could have shown up in strength and power and majesty, and it would have been beautiful and splendid because those things are also true about God. God is majestic. God is all-powerful. God is all-wise. Yet what he wanted to reveal to us in his birth was his vulnerability. What he wanted to reveal to us is, this is my heart. This is my heart that you can come to. You can approach me. This is who I am. See, God came to us so that we could go to him. He, he didn't wait for us to come. He came for us because he wanted us to know, this is what I'm really like. This is the real me. And the only way for you to know the real me is if I step into your real world and take on real human flesh so that you can know what I'm really like. In other words, God had to become vulnerable with us. Someone has said once, uh, relationship is vulnerability over time. Relationship is vulnerability over time. And so God takes his time. He says, I'm going to come take on your human flesh, and I'm going to be vulnerable with you for 33 years. I mean, just let your mind ponder that for a second. Jesus didn't skip his life on earth. He spent 33 years revealing to us what the heart of God is. Vulnerable with us. I mean, Jesus wept in vulnerability. Jesus spoke in vulnerability. Jesus listened in vulnerability. Jesus was coming to us to reveal to us this is what God's heart is. This is what he's like. You can come to him. You can approach him. And so he came for us to come. And the question is, have you come to him? Have you moved in his direction? Have you come? Because many of us, we've been holding off on coming to God, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Maybe you've been holding back being vulnerable with God because you've been guessing what he's like. You've been guessing that you know maybe he doesn't really like me. Maybe I've messed up too bad. Maybe I'm too old. Maybe I'm too confused. Maybe I've got too many doubts. Maybe he just isn't interested because when I pray, I don't feel anything. Or maybe I just can't get there because I don't understand the Bible. Whatever it is, you've got all these things swirling around and you're guessing what God is like. But listen, he's given you a sign, an undeniable sign. He says, you can approach me. I'm vulnerable with you. I've come to be with you. The sign is this baby, this baby that's born in Bethlehem. So this is the first part of the sign. God is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm approachable, I'm vulnerable, but where did he come to? And that's what I want to look at next. There's this sign of the manger, and this is the second point, the manger. Look again at verse 12. Listen to what it says. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The first part of the sign is a baby, right? The second part of the sign is a manger. And Luke repeats it three times to make sure that no one misses it. The manger is not an insignificant detail. He, he says it three times. In verse 7, he says, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Verse 12, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Verse 16, the baby lying in a manger. Clearly, there's something about the manger. It's, it's not just a place that was, that was uh, you know, haphazard coincidence. There is something happening here. Well, you've got to look at what the manger means. The manger, literally, the word means a feeding trough. 
In the Greek culture and, and, and where they're entering in, the, the word meant a feeding trough. Now, remember, Mary and Joseph are, are sleeping among the animals, right? They're in a little shelter where the animals are hanging out, and that's where the feeding trough is. And so this is the animals' feeding trough. If you need a Bible verse to kind of know what that looks like, Proverbs 14 even mentions it. It says, Proverbs 14, 4, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. Hence, where there are oxen, the manger is unclean. It's filthy. It's nasty. It's messy. The manger would have animal hair and feces and rotten food, and it would just be a mess because the animals aren't cleaning up after themselves. It'd be like if your six-year-old was in charge of cleaning the house. That's the manger. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to come there and I'm going to lie my head there. I'm going to be born into a manger. What is God saying in the sign of this manger? What, what, what is God saying? From his birth, Jesus is giving us a sign of his saving methods. He's saying, I'm coming to be vulnerable with you. I'm coming to reveal my heart to you. I'm coming to be weak in front of you. And yet, I'm not just coming to be with you. I'm coming to save you. And so he doesn't enter into the world on a private jet. He doesn't enter in on a royal carriage. He doesn't come in on even a, a luxury SUV, right? He, he comes in on a manger, on a manger. He comes in to save us, not commuting from the safety of heaven to, to enter in and then just kind of do what he's got to do and then go back to the safety and, and not really be affected, not really be touched. No, God enters into the world in a manger. He becomes unclean to save the unclean. He becomes lowly to save the lowly. He becomes fully human to save our full humanity. This is what God is really like. He's saying, this is what I am. I get messy to save the messy. St. Augustine uh, was one of the church fathers from North Africa. I guess this morning is the, the church father morning, as we mentioned Athanasius earlier. Uh, but St. Augustine was in the 4th and 5th centuries, and uh, he had this brilliant mind and, and, and a passion for prayer that you would think he's the kind of guy who would want to just kind of get away and, and spend his life praying and, and, and be separated from the world. And, and he would have loved that and would have done well at it. I mean, he wrote some of the most influential books that transformed the church, but also Western civilization. I mean, very few people in the West have had as much influence as St. Augustine. And yet, here's this man who just couldn't resist being in leadership because people kept seeing this man who, who loved God and loved people, and they said, we want you to be a bishop, we want you to be a bishop. And so finally, he gives in. He becomes a bishop in the church. He's overseeing all these churches in northern Africa. And then the German vandals try to attack and take over northern Africa. So they, they come in and they, they siege the area and uh, it was 427 when they come in, and now all these refugees are flowing into his city where he's living, in Hippo. And so here's St. Augustine, the bishop of this region, and his city is flooded with refugees. And because the city had so many refugees, there, were, there weren't places for people even to live. There were so many people that he decided, you know, we got to do something about this because now people are, are, are packing into this tight space and it's creating sickness, it's creating need, and, and they didn't know what to do. And Augustine had three choices. 
He could either flee to somewhere else. He could hide in his little house and pretend like there wasn't a problem. Or he could get his hands dirty and risk getting sick himself as he cared for all the needs in his city. And his biographer says this, Augustine didn't know how to be a bishop from a distance. He didn't know how to, how to live the life of Christ from a distance because as he reflected on the life of Jesus, he realized Jesus didn't live his life from a distance. He entered in. And so the third month of the siege in August of 430, Augustine developed this high fever in which he never recovered. He died because he was serving. The very last moments of his life, St. Augustine was serving this marginalized, needy group of refugees because he knew that love required that he enter into the mess. He enter into the mess. See, God couldn't be God from a distance. He had to enter in. God enters the messy manger to show us our mess, to show us that sin has made our world a mess. Sin has made our, our communities and our families a mess. But most of all, sin has made our souls a mess. There's a sickness in us from sin that has gone so deep, it's now the source of all our trouble. It's the reason we have pain. It's the reason we have difficulty. It's the reason we have loss. It's the reason that, that drives our shame and demands our guilt. It haunts our past. It, it gives fear to our future. There's more than what we do in our sin. It actually becomes the sickness of who we are in our fallen state. And so what the Bible says is we need a Savior to come into that sick mess. And that Savior was born on Christmas Day. See, Jesus could have fled to the heavens and ignored his people. Jesus could have hid in the unknown and let sickness take us. But instead, Jesus enters into the mess of sin and misery in this world to redeem us. To redeem us. See, God becomes man in Jesus' birth, but God becomes sin in Jesus' death. The child who lay in a manger would one day hang on a cross and he would become sin for us, taking our place for all that we deserve. He would stand in the gap for all our guilt. He would be the substitute for our most vulnerable shame. From the manger to the cross, God is giving us this sign. He's saying, I will redeem you from all your mess because that's who I am. And ultimately, God became like us so that we could become like him. See, the hope of the gospel is more than forgiveness. It's more than a new start. It's actually a new life. It's a new life with God. It's a new creation of all things. The birth of Jesus is the promise of our new birth. And so he makes us alive where we were spiritually dead. He, he makes us uh, hopeful where we were despairing. He makes us whole where we were broken. He makes us loving where we were selfish. He makes us full of the Spirit where we were empty in grace. This is the power of the good news at Christmas. There's new life in the manger. There's new hope in the manger. There's new love in the manger because Christ is born. Christ is born. And so God has given us this incredible sign of who he really is, a baby and a manger. He's saying, you don't have to guess anymore. You don't have to wonder what I'm like. You don't have to wonder what my heart is towards you. You don't have to wonder if you're invited or if you're welcome. He said, I've come to be vulnerable with you, to give my life for you so that you can come and be vulnerable with me. Right? This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's to be vulnerable with God. 
It's to pray and say, God, I, I'm going on record that I need you. I, I am desperately sick. I am desperately sick in my sin and my suffering. I need your grace. And so I'm so grateful that you sent your son Jesus to be the gift to show me this sign, to show me that you love me and you give yourself for me because I need that. And so I turn away from my life, away from you, and I turn towards a life with you and I put my trust in you. That's what he offers. This vulnerable God offers us to be vulnerable with him that we might find life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're so grateful in this season to remember that you've come. Christ has come. Christ is born. And yet we also remember this day that you will come again. You will come again for us. You will come and reveal yourself once again fully. You will show us your heart. You will show us your love. And so, God, we, we want our hearts to be towards you. We want our hearts this season to be in your direction. So we pray for your grace to turn us towards you. Help us to see the sign that you've given us, to reveal or to, to receive your revelation of yourself, that you are the God who is self-denying, self-giving, vulnerable for us, even to the cross. We're grateful for all that you've done and given to us. We pray you give us the gift of faith to receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet as we sing again this morning.